0: It's Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism, coming to you from 2SER in Sydney, on Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. My name's Olivia Rosenman. Coming up, we'll discuss the controversial changes made to this year's Walkley Awards... We consider if Sky News is becoming more like Fox News, and we will take a look at a new TV show that sits in an unusual grey spot between news and entertainment. Joining us in the studio today is Helen Vatsokopoulos, lecturer in journalism at the University of Technology in Sydney. Hello, Helen. Hello, thank you. Mark DiStefano, the political editor at BuzzFeed Australia. G'day, g'day. And Osman Faruqi, news and political editor at Junkie.
1: Hello, thanks for having me on.
0: The annual Walkley Awards are Australia's most prestigious journalism awards, but this year things are going to look a little bit different. Four categories have been dropped. Those four categories are interview, international journalism, artwork and journalism leadership. There are a few new categories including production, which is for behind the scenes journos like uh, producers, designers, backbenchers and subs, and innovation, which is not for stories but is for apps tools, products and news-gathering techniques. The headline category has been expanded to headline, caption or hook, which means that it now includes short-form work like Instagram posts, tweets and teasers. And podcasts now have a place in the awards in the radio news and current affairs or audio feature category. In a piece co-authored by the Walkley's outgoing chair, Kate McClymon, and the new chair, Angelos Frangopoulos... The changes were explained by the fact that, quote, journalists' skill sets are expanding beyond one medium and new ways of storytelling keep popping up. But categories cannot be constantly added to take this into account. Their changes were not really welcomed by the journalism community, especially the decision to axe the award for international reporting. 480 journalists, media executives and academics signed an open letter to the Walkleys urging them to reverse what they described as a short-sighted decision. Many took to Twitter and Facebook to voice their disappointment and several wrote articles explaining all the reasons they thought it was wrong, including you. Helen, in your article, you said that the decision rams another nail into the coffin of international journalism. So if it's already dead, then why does it merit an award? Well, it's not dead yet. What we're saying
2: is that it's in danger for many reasons. The first is because it's becoming much more expensive to do international journalism, especially if you want to go to places like Mosul or Aleppo, and not very many people want to do that anyway. But if you want to go to those places, or Yemen like Foreign Correspondent did and won the International Walkley last year it takes a completely different skill set Um, it's becoming more difficult, but it doesn't mean that it's not happening. It's also much more dangerous, and that, of course, adds to the cost because then you have to have more security. But that is not a reason to say, oh, well, it's just a little bit too hard. Let's get rid of it. We have to hold on to the things that matter, and international reporting Matters now more than ever. If you look at the state of the world, I want someone to go to Saudi Arabia and tell me what the hell is happening over there with the fight with Qatar. You know, I want someone to go over there and explain that to me. Um, I want people to go to Mosul now and find all those stories. But to say that it's nearly dead anyway, so let's just kill it off completely, I think it's really short sighted. We might as well just dig a hole and stick our heads in it.
0: All right, so less journalists are being sent overseas, however. I mean, you did say that it it is becoming more expensive, or it's it's as expensive as it always has been, but perhaps news organisations have less money to be able to, to handle those expenses. So yes, less journalists are being sent overseas. But local journalists are better connected than ever, and on top of that, I hate the term citizen journalists, but I will use it. People are on the ground documenting what's going on with smartphones and on social media. So why can't they just replace foreign correspondents?
2: They're completely different. A month ago, I was at a panel discussion with the head of the, international, uh, the ICRC, International Commission of the Red Cross, Yves Dacour. And one of the things he is ramming home uh, here in Australia and all over the world is where are you? Where are the international journalists that come from accredited and well-known organisations who can filter, and by that I mean they can actually get to the truth of the matter and analyse and contextualise and explain what is happening there. I would argue that the local people on the ground can do that to a certain extent. Citizen journalists, who are these people? There's a lot of propaganda out there and I would much rather someone from the New York Times that I know whose work I'm familiar with or foreign correspondent going to these places and coming out and contextualising and analysing and this is what is missing. This is what the ICRC headset said is missing. Where are you all? We need to encourage this even more rather than to say, oh, well, it's all over. And it just reminded me of that shot of uh, Donald Trump at the G20 sitting by himself, you know, all lonesome and everyone else is talking around him. He doesn't get it. He's not into international. <laughs> it's not his thing. He
0: just wants to make America great. So is that what we're supposed to be doing? don't think so. Oh, Helen said it's it's difficult and it's dangerous. But... Why does a willingness to take risks merit recognition?
1: Good question. I mean, I think, I actually feel a bit sorry for the for the Walkleys in this situation because Australia's media scene is kind of wonderfully insular. And whenever there are any changes to anything that happens, in particular the Walkleys, people get very, very fired up about it um, and... I'll answer your question in, in a second, but I think a lot of the changes that they've made have kind of been subsumed by this focus on the international reporting. I think the change in expanding the headline category to include things like social pushes and hooks is really, really smart, because that's how a lot of journalism is done these days. The point of a headline was to capture your attention. Now your attention is captured by what you see in a tweet or what you see on Facebook or what you see on Instagram. And acknowledging the work that a lot of people do to make those things really interesting is, is a great move. I, I I don't know. So I signed, I signed the letter and I kind of thought about it afterwards. Like, am I just jumping on, you know, an outrage machine to, to kind of stir up a bit of controversy? But the more I've thought about it, and there's been a couple of things this week that have convinced me why it's a bad move. And I agree with a lot of what Helen said. It's important for people to contextualize for Australian audiences what's going on, particularly in the Middle East at the moment. But Bigger than that, Australia is militarily engaged in, I think, nearly half a dozen countries around the world. We're bombing Syria and Iraq right now, and our journalists and our media organisations that have the resources to cover those issues should be doing it. And when they break interesting stories, they should be acknowledged for that. I don't really buy the Walkley's line that, oh, this can just go into general reporting categories, because they've got a lot of different categories. They've just established an arts criticism category this year with the Pascal Prize merging into the Walkley Foundation. That's a good move. Um, This week, there's been a a story broken by the ABC national reporting team about allegations the SAS in Afghanistan um, killed a 14-year-old innocent civilian. That's a huge story that we should be finding out more about. And that kind of journalism deserves to be rewarded. It does involve taking risks. And I think, you know, news editors and managers and publishers might deny this. But I think when the Walkleys are considered this prestige award, what they choose to recognise or not recognise will will have decisions, I think, in terms of where resources go. So I think it'd be disappointing if the big news outlets in particular that have got the resources to do this sort of stuff decided to not do it because it would mean that they wouldn't get the Walkley Award, which they then couldn't use to drum up more support and, and bigger audiences.
0: But do you think that that is really the reason that they're deciding not to do this kind of stuff for, for fear of not being able to enter it in a Walkley? Or is it really purely a resource-driven decision. I don't
1: think it's either one or the other. Like, I don't think news organisations make their decisions on what to resource purely on what the Walkley Award categories are. But news organisations also spend a lot of time crafting their entries because they want to win the awards because when they do, it makes them look really, really good. And in this kind of news environment, you want to set yourself apart as much as possible. So if there isn't an award to win and you're already struggling to, to build the argument to fund it, I think that's like another reason against funding this sort of journalism.
0: Mark, the 2017 Digital News Report found 60% of Australian audiences describe themselves as extremely interested in international news. So are news organisations that are pulling back from international reporting and downsizing their foreign bureaus, are they making a short-sighted decision?
3: Uh, the simple answer, uh, of course they are. And and I think that the concern that um, every organisation is going through at the moment with commercial pressures and making decisions about what stories to commission and what stringers to, to pick up and what freelancers to throw money at, I think all of these things are... Are flowing into um, us figuring out the world that we live in in about three or four years time, where the commercial environment's probably softened a little bit more, where we can figure, it, where, where we've actually settled. And at the moment, we're in a constant, we're in a bit of a set of flux, where you know newspapers and TV stations are trying to figure out what they're going to look like in five to ten years time. I think that I just want to pick up on a few things that people have said already. Um, Australian TV coros um, are actually some of the best in the world, which is the the really interesting thing that. I mean, I think that we know that amongst the journalism community, but I, I think that maybe the general public don't realise that when um, Matt Brown um, from the ABC goes um, to the front line of ISIS and his package on um, his 40-minute um, uh, foreign correspondent... Oh, actually, it was probably a Four Corners was was, was done... Um, it was probably some of the best forty minutes of um, of of reporting that had been done in that space, and I have no doubt that the ABC then markets that story to other networks um, around the world. I think that interestingly, um, the biggest international story at the moment um, that really is taking everyone's attention—if you sort of cite that seventy-two percent figure—is probably the story about Donald Trump, and and I, I know that for me and and my network of of friends and followers and audience it's kind of like a, 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 a fire hydrant where it's it is this story that every time um it, it catches fire onto anything it sort of blows everything else apart and i think there are just two two instances recently where there's been some sort of impact was um you know uh, Zoe Daniel, um, the um, ABC's Coro over in the US um, she she interviewed um, the leader of the alt-right, Richard Spencer which was pretty innocuous interview but she was at the right place at the right time and she was the one that captured the very viral footage of him getting knocked out. Now I know that that probably doesn't <laughs> seem like award winning but what it does is the ABC was the, and the Australian TV crew was the one on the ground that, that captured that now iconic piece of image, um, and then the second one. And again, this is probably going to get me criticised, but I mean, the um, Chris Yormans uh, monologue recently, like you know. It's very it's very rare for a piece of Australian reporting to have been seen by so many people um, around the world, and that's Australian interpretation or Australian analysis of world events. So I think that, um, I mean, and the ABC should be congratulated for that. The worst part about this is that when we talk about these discussions, and we've done it already, is we constantly just have one word on or well, one acronym, which is the ABC. And I think that that's the really concerning thing, is that the Sunday nights, the 60 minutes, the the guardian um you know the new, the big newspapers um they also do incredible, incredible work, and so often they're the ones that are actually coming up against the ABCs and the SBSs in this category, and they're the ones that are actually going to be missing out on 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 that really great um, recognition that that comes with the, in this space. So I think that um, and and again I, I agree with Oz. Um, you know, you don't obviously commission stories for Walkley Bait, but there are very clear considerations when you do a great story or you've actually got a great story on your hands, you potentially are potentially pitching it that that this potentially, uh, uh, you know, uh, when award season rolls around, it actually might be something that, that is front of centre for these news organisations.
0: All right. Well, I'll put one final question to all of you. I think it's clear here that the Walkley is trying to stay relevant as the media industry changes and changes quickly. They also recently announced the appointment of BuzzFeed's editor-in-chief, Simon Crear, to their advisory board. But still, when you look at the 11 board members, they're very much representative of legacy media. So how well do you think the Walkleys is doing with keeping up with the changing media landscape?
3: I think it's doing pretty well. Like, I mean, you know, there are changes I saw... Helen shaking her head when Oz was talking about the inclusion of tweet and sell, um, including in the headline. It was actually interesting. We've had people in the US come out here, and when they when they find out that we give a, a journalism award for headline of the, they laugh and say, "Are you guys serious?" Like, such <laughs> an Australian thing, where you've got things like the NT News that are on constantly winning awards in that area. I think the Walkleys, compared to other um, journalistic awards around the world, are quite forward-thinking and quite progressive, especially considering that the big ones in the US, things like the Pulitzers, or in the UK, the press awards aren't recognising those sort of things. So so I think that the um, well, the Walkley Committee as a group is is quite forward-thinking and quite with the times compared to other sort of more turgid, stodgy, journalistic associations around the world.
2: Well, it's interesting that, that they have included tweets and yes, uh, I'm sorry, I don't agree with that. Mm. I always thought the headline award was a bit ridiculous, that, <laughs> that you could actually go out to lunch, come back and, and come up with a headline and you get a Walkley and someone who spent, you know, four months researching something uh, gets the same thing.
3: What about a front page? What about a newspaper front page? Because it's the same thing, you know, and as, as I said, a push notification is the equivalent of a newspaper front page.
2: Mm. I don't know. Maybe it's it's my um, broadcasting <laughs> background talking here, but you know, the real issue. I think you m- you mentioned legacy media, but I think the real issue is that the Pulitzer and the UK Press Awards still have an international reporting award. So this was a big mistake. I don't see all the tele- all the interviewers complaining. The interview's gone. This is the one that's really resonating, and I think it's not just because uh, it's deemed to be legacy or whatever. I think it's because it's in- Important it is important in the world today.
1: Uh, just quickly on the, on the headline thing, I think I think maybe why I feel it's worth acknowledging the role and the and the time spent sometimes in crafting those pushes is because you know you mentioned Helen that you know you have people who work for four months on a story and a lot of it goes into that. But the way that the news environment works these days is that if the way that that is sold online is not perfected, you won't get people reading that story. So it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. Of course, people that put their time and effort into reporting something need to be acknowledged, but if no one reads it and then that's a problem and a lot of time and effort does get spent in creatively telling a story really, really quickly and snappily to hook people in. I think that's an interesting thing that, that's worthy of merit. In terms of the, the Walkleys more generally, I agree with Mark but I think there's one thing that is disappointed me just because you brought up the, the board, um, Olivia the exit of Marina Go, who's a former uh, private media publisher there's no people of colour left on the Walkley board and I'm, I'm a member of a group called Media Diversity Australia and it's something that you know we're passionate about across all sections of the industry it is kind of disappointing that in 2017 you've got a board of i think 10 to 11 uh, members and they're not thinking about that necessarily and i would encourage them to consider if they want to be seen as the premier media organization in australia think about what australia looks like and whether your board and your committees and your judging panels will look like that as well
0: and Good point. i would encourage our listeners who uh if they didn't hear it listen to our interview with kai chow from media diversity mm. australia it's a really fascinating interview You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Helen Vatsokopoulos, Mark DiStefano, and Osman Faruqi. Now, if you've been watching Sky News of late, you may have noticed it's looking a little bit less like the committed practitioner of quality journalism it claims to be, and a little bit more like, well, Fox News. (laughs) Especially in the evenings when, starting from 7pm, the channel shows up to four hours straight of hard-right commentators like Andrew Bolt and Paul Murray, who now gets two hours all to himself to broadcast what is often quite vitriolic commentary, such as a recent six-minute tirade about the Minister for Defence Industry, Christopher Pine, that was highlighted by Media Watchers' Paul Barry, in which he calls Pine a wanker, an asshole, piss sweet and more. Barry asked his audience to imagine what the response would have been from the News Corp Press if ABC had broadcast something like that. Mark, you published an article this week on the topic and you spoke to several former and current Sky News reporters who voiced their dismay for what is happening at the channel. Sky News was fully acquired by News Corp at the end of 2016, so there's an obvious connection to be made here with the increase in right-wing coverage. Is it a simple case of cause and effect? No,
3: it's, it, it isn't. And Angelos, who we did talk about in the first segment, he's the CEO of Sky News, very, very popular internally, personally, on the ground. His reporters love him, as do the presenters. And and I, and I, I should say, for this article, I did speak to about a dozen reporters who were on the news side, and I think that... There's that real difference and there's a quote in my piece where one of the reporters told me that it's kind of like Frankenstein's Monster comes out at seven PM because really I mean this should be is important. Like between six AM and seven PM, it's probably the most impactful um, important journalistic TV platform in the country. So many um, of the voices that you see in the news that nine have been interviewed during the day. You've got David Spears, who, in my mind, is the premier interviewer in the country and, and has the ability to uh, turn ministers and the prime minister to water in, in the course of an interview. It is that case of once 7pm hits, you've got Andrew Bolt, you've then got a, a weird hour between 8 and 9, which is like a rotating one, and then between 9 and 11, Paul Murray, and between 11 and 12, you've got this really weird show um, hosted by Chris. Chris Kenny where he has fellow news court people on to talk about what's in the news court papers the next day. and um, and it really does I mean that, this should be this should be said though. on those panel shows, it really is just constant talk. On those panel shows, they do have left wing voices. they do have progressive voices. they do have labor people on. but the overwhelming majority of those monologues and the stuff that they try to push out onto online, does come from the more conservative side of politics, and it takes on this tinge of really unhinged you know, rambling monologues. Um, Paul Murray is an amazing case study. And, and I tell you what, if you did a, did a study of his progression of politics, his personal progression through through the years would be interesting because now he opens his show with these six to ten minute rants completely. He doesn't look at the auto cue, doesn't write scripts, and, and they're just all off the top of his head. And he is a real Tony Abbott booster. And at the moment, you've got people like him, Bolt, and Peter Credlin, who are in many ways creating the... Creating the, or in the ring for the fight between um, Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott, but they're also broadcasting the fight as well, which I think is a really interesting situation where Australia's news channel is now um, sort of the i guess ground zero for this uh tearing up of the liberal party's soul and and I watch way too much of this this channel already, but people like Cory Bernardi and Pauline Hansen are the winners because they are on every night and they're in in many aspects and i've there's a segment of my piece that that highlights this is that Andrew Bolt deliberately um doesn't ask him journalistic questions and says that's the way it works here, so I think it's just a really interesting look. At what's going on when most people are watching MasterChef or getting on with their evenings? That there is this five, at least up to five hours of just like twilight zone. Um, if, you st- if you only l- watch this for your news, um, I think you'd have a very different idea of what was happening in politics right now.
0: Well, that's a great point when everyone else is watching MasterChef because one big difference here in Australia is that we don't have a strong tradition of cable subscriptions television. In fact, more people in Australia pay for streaming services like Netflix or Stan than they do for Foxtel, which shows Sky News. So, Helen, is it as much of a concern if relatively few people are watching? Personally,
2: I think uh, I despair at what's happening. To Sky, I think it's something that's crept in over the last year and a bit. Uh, Sky was always one of those go-to places when there was a really big international or national event and then you would do your surfing and you'd see who has the best coverage, same for elections. And then suddenly uh, you have this sort of he, he says, she says, ranting, screaming. I mean, the uh, the poor Murray, Christopher Pine thing is beggar's belief. I cannot believe that this is actually allowed on on TV and to me it's like the migration of the radio shock jocks onto television so finally they've arrived in television thank God not a lot of people are listening to it. I don't think it's in any way, should be regarded as journalism. I know, Mark, you said that you do have people from, you know, all shades of politics there, but the dominant voice is an extreme right-wing voice. It's certainly not. Uh, it's not about diversity. It's not about multiculturalism. It's 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 just, it's ranting. I don't consider it journalism,
0: uh, and I think it's a real shame. So you said it's it's like the arrival of radio shock jocks on television, and certainly those commercial radio shock jocks are a very successful business model. So, Oz, do you think that this, the strong right-wing views that are aired, which are often quite populist ideas, anti immigration for example, is a big one, do you think that it's coming from a desire to push those issues onto the national agenda or just because it's a really effective business model?
1: I think the statistic that you that you just uh, explained to us, that more Australians are on streaming services than on Foxtel, I think if you look a bit deeper into that, you get an understanding of why Sky has adopted this strategy. Because when you look again at the, the percentage of Australians on streaming services, that would skew to younger audiences rather than older audiences, the people that are still on Foxtel and certainly the ones watching Sky News. Older and in Australia, older tends to mean more politically conservative generally. And I think Sky's got this situation where they are a TV channel that needs to bring in a certain number of subscribers and a certain number of viewers to justify their existence. That will shift a bit now that News Corp has bought them and they'll integrate that into the wider news strategy. But uh, Sky is the, the audience and the, the world that Sky is playing in is an older conservative audience. And like men, how many digital websites who have an audience predominantly of younger people have talked a lot more in the last few years about issues that matter to younger progressive audiences i think sky is doing the reverse of that for its audience or the audience that it thinks that it's trying to get so i think there is a commercial imperative there i think in terms of the presenters they're just saying the ideological stuff that they personally agree with and i sometimes grapple with how much we as as junkie or as you know as journalists more generally should talk about sky news because it's true as as mark you know explained in his article it doesn't get an enormous amount of viewership though even if you have 40,000 viewers on a show that can tra- travel much farther through social videos on facebook and twitter but to me so like look at the example of rowan dean on um on outsiders on sunday where he said that uh, tim supomasan the race discrimination commissioner should hop on a plane and go back to, to laos that would not have been seen by that many people. And it's like, well, if we write about this, if we cover it, if we blow it up on Twitter, many, many more people will get exposed to that. Is that the right thing to do? The decision that I personally landed on was, even if not that many people watching it, Sky News is still considered to be a credible, if not prestigious media uh, platform, and it has a lot of great journalists and presenters that break a lot of great stories. The fact that that kind of stuff is just being said, it needs to be challenged to some extent, because you know, I don't think we should just get to a point in Australia where that sort of thing can be said on a national media organisation and everyone's just like, oh, well, that's just what Sky News is like these days. But it's still something that I, I kind of grapple with when Paul, when Paul Murray and these guys say these crazy things to these tiny audiences. Do we keep pushing back? Is it our job to push back? Do we just let it happen and do we deal with it in a different way? I don't know what the answer to that
3: is. It is interesting, though. It does dismay. It does dismay the news reporters at the network. I mean, in the wake of the Rowan De comments, we did have Sky News reporters and presenters who work during the day, Daytime Sky, they did come out and say it was reprehensible and I was contacted, you know, in the wake of my article, contacted by, and I get many more stories by people about what's going on at the network and we've seen in the last six months there is um, pitched battles that are happening between Daytime Sky and Nighttime Sky. We saw it over Ross Cameron's disgusting comments about um, the Gay Liberal Party. Um, We saw um, the firing of Mark Latham after he went after a few of the Sky News presenters personally and especially one of them he went after his wife and um, now we're also seeing it with Rowan Dean so I think that those um, so-called deplorables who love to think that um, this is part of their commercial um, value um, they will start being, uh, I guess put up um, to the test, especially with Angelos, um, the CEO, he has to start thinking about who is actually more valuable commercially to mm. the network. Is mm. it the nighttime Sky and is it the Outsiders on Sunday? Or is it the David Spears, the Kieran Gilbert in the morning or the, and Peter Van Onselen during the day, the people who actually have made Sky News a network in which you have to tune into for news? Mm.
0: So you said it, it is a commercial decision and it's certainly that sort of, Hard right stance is a commercial decision that has been, as I said, very successful on commercial radio for a long time. If I can ask you all, why do you think we have lasted so long without a Fox News equivalent here in Australia?
3: Just the size, just the size of our audience. It's like if, you know, really, how many hard hard right... Or, or conservative people, um, you know, we're probably talking in Australia like four to five million people who are generally see themselves as that. You look at the the membership of the Liberal Party is absolutely falling off a cliff. You look at the people who are buying news corp newspapers, that's falling as well. It's migrating online as well. So we, we, we might see more right-wing. Um, and look, you know, we've seen the, the flowering of the Daily Mail here in Australia, which definitely um, caters to that, that political viewpoint. So I think that the one reason we haven't seen like a, a real centralised Fox News type thing here in Australia is just, just we're just too small. I got nothing to add, that nailed it.
0: You're listening to Fourth Estate. You're with me, Olivia Rosenman, and I'm speaking to Helen Vatsakopoulos, Mark DiStefano, and Osman Faruqi. Channel 10 has launched a new show that sits in an unusual grey spot between news and entertainment. Common Sense, which aired its first episode last week, features a cast of everyday people from around Australia discussing the news of the week. The cast is a relatively diverse group. There's a trio of retirees, a family who runs a vegetable market, and a pair of butchers, for example, and we watch them in their workplaces talking about things like Trump's tweets, politicians' pay, and the census result. So is this news? Is this entertainment? Is this both? Is it neither? What are your thoughts?
1: I think it's both. I love it. I love the idea and I can't wait to watch it. So I'm an unashamed Gogglebox fan. Um, I just think it's it's really like Gogglebox is such a great show for a TV network to produce because uh, it costs nothing <laughs> like like the Sky shows, um, but you get this kind of weird voyeuristic you know perspective on what normal people you know in quotation Marks are doing with their lives. And I think for a lot of people that I hang out with who who work in journalism and politics, uh, they seem quite shocked by this idea of getting normal people to to talk about politics, but man, we need more of that. Like, you know, If we're getting Australians of all stripes and we're getting their take on what Trump's tweeting or what what's happening in Canberra, and if their take is, I don't give a shit about this or what even are you talking about, like that's good for people to know. It's good for people to know how little <laughs> normal Australians care about a lot of stuff that we take very seriously. And I think in the show, we'll also be quite surprised that a lot of uh, normal Australians will have very, very interesting insights into stuff. Um, I'm personally, yeah, really keen to watch it. And I think... Everyone should just give it a go rather than writing it off and saying, oh, well, you know, it's, it's like Q&A for, for, for boring Australians or whatever. Like, I'd rather watch this than Q&A, to be honest.
0: Do you think, Helen, do you think the show might inspire people who don't consume much news to start reading the newspaper or engaging more with news? Uh,
2: I'm not sure. Um, I've only seen a teeny-weeny bit of it. But I, too, am a big fan of Gogglebox. You know, we watch it as a family. The kids love it. We love it. And one of the wonderful things about Gogglebox uh, that I found uh, as as, as a journalist is that the uh, people who used to comment on news when it was on Gogglebox, when they used to watch the news, were a lot smarter than the executives of the television stations think they are. Mm. I mean, they're their perceptions of certain things were so spot on. And I I remember, for example, uh, Channel 7 had a special one night and it was on a cruise, a big cruise ship, and they had their celebrities on and everything was fab, fab. But in reality, it wasn't fab. People had food poisoning and all sorts of things. And they picked up on it. They picked up on it. And they said, aren't these the celebrities? Did they get paid to do this? So you know they are not stupid. The viewer is not stupid. And that was one of the wonderful things about Gogglebox. Um, you know when they see Annabelle Crab with politicians cooking, uh, they you know they said the same thing. What sort of a show is this? You know I know that politician. Is that are they trying to humanise that politician? I thought they were so spot on. So I look forward to this, and maybe a few more executives and even people who run the news should watch those sort of things and realise that. You know, if you dumb down and if you consider everybody to be, you know, the hoi polloi, then you're wrong. You know, people are a lot more perceptive than you give them credit for.
0: Well, that is all we have time for this week on 4th Estate. Thank you so much to my guests, Helen Thank you. Osman Faruqi, Cheers. and Mark DiStefano. Thank you so much. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the 4th Estate podcast. If you like the show, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help other people to find the show. Stay in touch on Facebook and Twitter. My name's Olivia Rosenman, and you can catch us at the same time next week.